Hello and welcome to the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on April 23rd, 2021 from James Island, South Carolina. Just so you know, some of the information in this podcast may have changed by the time you've heard it. This episode features a look at what bills made moves in the Statehouse this week. We have top-notch reporting from South Carolina Public Radio reporters as well, including the Russ McKinney on Santee Cooper and the state budget. Scott Morgan follows up on his reporting with encouraging news on vaccine hesitancy. And Victoria Hansen has reaction from Walter Scott's family following the Chauvin trial verdict, which we'll focus on with additional insight from USC criminology professor Jeff Alpert and Columbia Mayor Steve Benjamin. Additionally, we want to hear your stories, so we set up a voice mailbox to hear from you all about life during these uncertain times. Leave us a one to three minute long voicemail at 803-563-7169. Leave us your name, where you're calling from, and what's going on in your world. 803-563-7169. Now for the latest in South Carolina. Currently, the spread of COVID-19 is ongoing, widespread, and not contained, according to data from the Department of Health and Environmental Control. There have been 8,278 confirmed deaths, and currently there are 478,046 confirmed cases being reported in all 46 counties as of April 23rd at 4 p.m. And some more data for you. Our deaths have ranged from 2 to 23 over the past seven days. Many of those are deaths that occurred on previous dates, including as far back as last June. Out of 18,516 tests on April 21st, our current percent positive rate is 4.6%. Over the last seven days, we've ranged from 4.4% to 6.3% positivity rate. Currently, 532 patients are hospitalized with COVID-19, 138 are in intensive care, and 66 are on ventilators. The 30-day trends for all three of those indicators remains elevated. And we have just a quick global outlook for you from Johns Hopkins, which reports that the global daily incidence rate is already setting new records, and daily mortality is on track to surpass its previous high as well. While the global trends in daily incidents are largely driven by India's ongoing surge, South America accounts for nearly one-third of the global daily mortality, more than any other continent. However, it appears to have leveled off over the past week or so. So a lot happening elsewhere in the world. It was a busy week at the Statehouse with big moves off the floor and in committees as well. But let's start over in the House with some highlights. The House Judiciary Committee sent several bills to the floor Tuesday, including one that would let death row inmates choose between a firing squad or the electric chair as their method of execution, since the state can no longer procure lethal injection drugs. The Senate approved a bill limiting a business's liability for lawsuits as a result of COVID-19 exposure to employees or customers, that is, if it follows best practices, also made it out of judiciary as well. And the bill that reduces drug sentences for non-parole eligible drug offenders and eliminates mandatory minimums is now on the House calendar. Over in the Senate, we saw the budget get approved by the Finance Committee and a Santee Cooper reform bill pass. More on both of those in a moment. Off the Senate floor, a Judiciary Subcommittee passed the hate crimes bill to the full Judiciary Committee on Wednesday. The bill, which increases penalties for those who commit crimes against people based on things like race and sexual orientation, still faces challenges from some senators who have issues over the people protected in this bill. The governor signed a bill into law Thursday that mandates all schools to return to full face-to-face instruction starting April 26. The State Department of Education said as of April 21st that 1,210 schools were face-to-face, 
while 51 schools in Carlton, Greenville, and Hampton 2 school districts were offering hybrid options. All of them will be in compliance come Monday. Requiring teachers to receive additional compensation if they have to teach online and in person is a bit of a motivator here. And FYI, I was just a little bit eager last pod saying we had six days till signy die. We have nine, folks. I was just excited, hopeful, I think ready, all the above. My cue card was turned upside down. And now, the Russ McKinney gives us this deep dive on the future of Santee Cooper following a reform bill that passed the Senate this week, among other actions surrounding the state-owned utility, as well as more details on the Senate-approved version of the state budget, which will be debated next week. After almost four years of investigations, recriminations, hearings, and debate following the V.C. summer nuclear debacle, both the South Carolina House and Senate have now passed bills to bring major reform to state-owned utility Santee Cooper. This week, the Senate passed its reform bill and, as expected, turned its back on the idea of selling the utility, which is considered one of state government's greatest assets. Since the collapse of the giant nuclear project in 2017, Santee Cooper has been under the gun from the legislature for the billions of dollars of debt it was left with and how the utility's leadership handled things before and after the collapse. Here's Senate Republican leader Shane Massey during debate this week. What has happened, not just with V.C. Summer, but with everything else we learned after looking because of V.C. Summer, that there has been, I've said this before, I think there has been a culture of corruption within the management levels. Santee Cooper has a new management team in place, and it has begun to reduce its debt. The reform bill calls for more oversight for the utility's rate-setting, borrowing authority, and future energy planning, and changes in its governing board. This week, Governor McMaster, who has called Santee Cooper a rogue agency, named a new chairman for its board. Former state representative and U.S. attorney Peter McCoy of Charleston. I am confident that Peter McCoy will be a true change agent and he will work to change the culture of closed door deals and secret contracts at Santee Cooper. McCoy, who led the House investigation of V.C. Summer, promised more openness at the utility. The transparency of what happens there because it is a state agency is of utmost importance. So again, me coming in there, making sure that ratepayers, most importantly the ratepayers, know what's happening there, I think is, is a very important thing to do. McCoy's nomination to head Santee Cooper's board is subject to confirmation by the Senate. South Carolina's state budget has been frozen for the past year as lawmakers were unsure just how much tax money the COVID-19 economy would produce. As it turns out, things weren't as bad as feared. And this week, the Senate Finance Committee took advantage of an expected $1.7 billion in additional revenue for next year's spending plan. The committee approved 2% pay raises for all state workers and $1,000 raises for teachers. And teachers will also receive their pre-approved annual step increases. Perhaps no group of state workers has borne the brunt of the COVID pandemic than teachers. Finance Committee member Mike Fanning of Great Falls. Starting last year, uh, teachers had to continue teaching on last year's money, not even get the step increase that they're, they're guaranteed, uh, and then teaching in the most untenable, hard, ridiculous environment, teaching online, in-person, mass, not mass, plexiglass, the stress with that. Uh, I think that my colleagues realized if we do have the money, which we do, we need to invest in those that have been working way above and beyond, as, as many of our South Carolina workers have done. 
The Senate version of the budget also contains over $250 million to school districts for school facility and instructional improvements. Also included is additional funding for 4K kindergarten expansion and $40 million for state colleges to hopefully freeze tuition rates. The budget adds almost $30 million for the state's child welfare programs. Next year's budget isn't expected to be finalized, however, until this fall. By then, lawmakers hope to know what spending guidelines are attached to the $2 billion coming to the state from the Federal American Recovery Plan. Thank you, Russ. Always insightful reporting right there. While lawmakers ramped up their sprint to the end of session this week, the verdict of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin dominated the news after he was found guilty on all three counts, including unintentional second-degree murder for the death of George Floyd. Let's lead off this section with a report from South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen on how the family of Walter Scott reacted to the verdict. As the verdict was read, convicting a former Minneapolis police officer in the videotape killing of George Floyd. We, the jury in the above entitled matter, as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. Anthony Scott listened from Charleston, more than 1,300 miles away, and it hit close to home. He heard people celebrating in the streets all across the nation. But he wasn't sure what to feel. Yes, a white police officer seen kneeling on the neck of an unarmed black man begging to breathe had been found guilty of murder. But was the verdict a victory? George Floyd is gone. So is Scott's brother, Walter. Killed six years ago as he fled a traffic stop. And what about all the other black men and women who've died at the hands of police in the years in between? I feel for all the families. So, yes, it's a step in the right direction, but we got a long way to go. It's already been a long journey for the Scott family. Their loss was one of the first racially charged videotaped officer-involved killings. The world watched as former North Charleston officer Michael Slager fired eight shots at the back of an unarmed Walter Scott. Slager was never convicted. His trial ended in a hung jury, and he eventually pleaded guilty to a federal civil rights charge. Just last week, he tried to appeal the 20-year sentence, blaming his defense attorney. Then they ask us why we're angry, why we're mad and why we protest the way that we do. And it's because we have been enduring this for so long and nothing has been done. Anthony Scott hopes people are finally beginning to see and believe what many black Americans fear every day, violence at the hands of police, and that they will deny what's become a common defense. It's the victim's fault, Scott for fleeing, Floyd for using drugs. But a collective shaking conscience is not enough. Anthony Scott says there needs to be a change in the system of policing. He points to the video of Officer Derek Chauvin ignoring police from bystanders to get his knee off of George Floyd's neck. No, bro, look at him. He's not responding right now, bro. She felt comfortable enough to believe that he was going to have the backing of the system to protect him and this violent, murderous act. Anthony Scott's wife, Denise, says while the nation may have sighed in relief at the Chauvin murder conviction, she can't relax as a black mother. It's, it's, it's so much. We are strong, and that's why George cut out his mama. 
We are holding it up. We are praying. We are sacrificing. She says she worries every time a loved one gets in a car and knows she still has to have the talk many black families do. If you are pulled over, keep your hands on the wheel at 10 and 2. Some of the youngest in the family still don't know how and why Walter Scott died. How do you explain to a child? Denise Scott wishes one day she didn't have to. The victory would be that they never know. Wouldn't you imagine? How would you imagine a world where we would never know racism? The family has vowed to fight for change ever since losing Walter Scott, to end abuse by police, particularly in communities of color. It's not so much when the camera's watching, but when the camera's not even on. They want justice to be blind, and people who are paid to serve and protect to do so regardless of color. I spoke with University of South Carolina criminology professor Jeff Alpert on This Week in South Carolina about the verdict, what it means for policing, and the role video plays in the deaths of George Floyd, Walter Scott, and more recently, Micaiah Bryant in Columbus, and Andrew Brown Jr. in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Well, the video is, is important evidence. In all of these cases, it, it gives us a different perspective than what we've had in the past with just written reports and people are spinning things in one direction or another um, it, because everyone has a vested interest and the video doesn't do that. Now, the video only gives you a partial view and we've got to be aware of, of that and what the partial view really is. Now, um, Again, this boil this case to me boiled down to the cause of death, and that was uh, uh, the, the we saw a parade of, of medical experts uh, who all pretty much said the same thing on the prosecutor side. And then we had the one person from Maryland uh, who, who kind of testified on the opposite side, and that's our adversarial system of justice here in America. That that's what we do, and obviously the jury believed the uh, prosecution witnesses, and and the cause of death was a substantially caused by keeping George Floyd on his stomach for such a long period. Uh, if you're a person of color, is it just, or anyone, I guess, maybe interacting with police, do we just need to make sure that someone is nearby rolling video or that a body camera is actually active? I mean, what's, what's it going to take to get someone's word to be worth something these days? I, I think the, the policies on body-worn cameras have now uh, become more sophisticated where uh, they have to be on instead of any discretion uh, in, in these kinds of, of, of interactions with the police and the public. Certainly uh, having more videos, uh, look what happened on January 6th with all the videos we have from the Capitol. We get a much better picture with different videos from different angles. Um, watching one video can be misleading, so I, I think, yeah, all these uh, different camera angles are really important to finding out what happened. What do you think is going to change as a result of this verdict? A lot of people are saying we're going to see more accountability. This was a big break for uh, accountability with police reforms. Do you see that happening? What, what could possibly result from this, maybe in the state level here in South Carolina? Well, I would hope that there, there's some real reform and training. I would hope there's some real reform in, in, in activities. Um, but I'm a little skeptical. I started my, my career uh, doing the after action report for the riots in Miami after a, uh, a black motorcycle rider was bludgeoned by, by police down there. And, and this was 1979, the riots in 1980 after the officer was acquitted. So we're really not far from where we were 40 years ago. And that's very disturbing. But, you know, being in 2000 and 21, uh, maybe we'll, we'll learn a little bit and maybe we will see these reforms and the Criminal Justice Academy and the various police departments around the state 
much more training on uh, how to slow things down, how to be more uh, empathetic towards towards us, how to be more empathetic towards people we don't understand, and really try to figure out how, how to resolve a conflict uh, other than the use of force and certainly the use of deadly force mm-hmm. when possible. Mm-hmm. And I want to put that caveat in there because – you know, we saw the shooting recently in, in Ohio uh, where the officer shot the woman who was stabbing uh, two other women. I'm not sure he had any time to slow things down. We don't know. We haven't done the investigation. But uh, sometimes you can't, but many times we can. Later in the same episode, I spoke with Columbia Mayor Steve Benjamin on how he works with activists to keep communication open and the police department responsive to community needs. We've always strived to, to be a focal point of, uh, of inclusive thought, practices, policies, um, uh, willing to, to challenge uh, the systemic uh, issues around race uh, and racism, uh, reimagining the way in which we provide safer communities and, and we, we provide good, good, good government. Um, I think it'd be um, folly to ever suggest uh, that um, that what happened in Minneapolis or anywhere else could never happen anywhere. I mean, I think that's the challenge of our, of, our, of our times. How do we put systems in place that allow our, our system of justice to work for all people, recognizing that in my faith tradition, uh, there's only one perfect person to ever walk the face of the earth, and he even, he even got mad with the money changers in the temple. Um, so people will always um, uh, make errors and sometimes grave errors. Uh, our job is to make sure that the system of justice we have is, uh, is rife with accountability, is 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 it's sincere and it's transparency and that we're constantly working to create that more perfect union mm-hmm. and that requires really thoughtful systemic change policy making laws changing uh, a, a commitment to truly pr- transparent government is it's a constant um, process that we started here in earnest uh, long before um, George Floyd's murder uh, after the um, uh, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson Missouri we started a series of, 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 of policy changes and training changes. We became the first state in the state to go 100% body cam um, uh, and, and make um, uh, the interactions between police officers and the communities that they protect uh, uh, very transparent. That was a start and was recognized by President Obama as we took a lead in, in helping uh, move forward this 21st century policing uh, uh, initiatives. That was a start that gave us a bit of a head start on a lot of places across the country. But, but just realizing that, that this is a constant uh, challenge, a constant process, a constant process of self-improvement. And, and also recognizing that the world we live in right now, we're so much more interconnected and interdependent than any time before. So if something happens in Columbus, Ohio, or Louisville, or, or, or a dirty street in, in Minnesota, or in rural Georgia, or Louisiana for that matter, it affects us here at home. So we're talking about spending, sending more money to police instead of, you know, people discussing, you know, diverting funds. You know, the phrase defunding police is really complicated, but it's really just talking about spending money in different ways, different approaches. What's it look like on city council? Are there any, is there any move to do that? Or how do you approach funding the police right now in this current budget year coming up? There's, there's, uh, I, I don't think there's an appetite. I have no appetite in, um, in removing money from the uh, police department budget. Mm-hmm. I think um, thinking very creatively about ways in which you invest in, in, in alternative programs, diversion programs, youth-oriented programs, recruitment programs that train the very best and brightest is where our focus ought to be. But but no, I, I think I think that's a that's a that's a red herring. Yeah. Uh, we need to focus on investing in communities, not 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 disinvesting from smart, solid, um, uh, safe communities. 
Now, this has been an emotional week for everyone, but especially Black Americans. It's important to give people space and support during these moments. In Washington, Senator Tim Scott is working with some Democrats to rework his police reform bill known as the Justice Act that died last summer. This comes while Democrats, including President Joe Biden, are calling on the Senate to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that goes farther than Scott's bill, but too far for many Republicans. If you were thinking we had a business section for you, well, you're getting medical instead. However, as of our taping, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices was still meeting, so we can't tell you anything new about their recommendations involving the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The expectation is that the ASIP will attach a warning to the vaccine going forward, but not add any age restrictions. This would be the same as Europe's regulator, the European Medicines Agency, which did that this week, according to the Washington Post. Again, as of our taping Friday afternoon, we don't know what the ASIP's decision will be. But DHEC is following this decision closely and we'll all know soon. So be sure to check out SCETV.org, SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org, and other trusted public media and news sources for the latest on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Next up, South Carolina Public Radio's Scott Morgan has this encouraging report about members of the African-American community who were originally hesitant about getting a COVID-19 vaccine but have since changed their minds. Back at the end of January, we reported on the resistance the African-American community held towards the newly rolled out COVID-19 vaccine. It went a little something like this. My family and friends post certain things about how they feel like they're being targeted, that they're trying to erase us. That from 22-year-old Jendaya Fleming, who went on to explain the long, deeply troubled and not unsubstantiated fear and mistrust African-Americans often have for the medical and scientific professions. To counter those fears, state and federal health officials, community organizations, and most mainstream media outlets in South Carolina pumped out information sessions, reports, reminders, the occasional gentle nudging to educate and reassure black residents that the vaccine would be safe to take. So two months on, how's that going? My first virtual forum was with the uh, national NAACP, and just listening to them talk about the vaccine for COVID-19 certainly put me at somewhat at ease. This is Greenville resident Shirley Scott, who started 2021 deeply hesitant about getting vaccinated and who just got her second vaccine shot, as did her son. He himself told me, when they come out, I'm going to get it. And I said, really? Because we hadn't really discussed it. And I thought to myself, well, now, if my 31-year-old is saying that, then... <laughs> You know, maybe I need to be more informed. Concentrated public information about the realities of the vaccine and the disease it combats have been crucial in getting through to a community that was at once disproportionately affected by COVID and stymied by nagging fears. My biggest fear was that the vaccine for the virus seemed to have come so quickly. Courtney Jefferson is a senior at Winthrop University in Rock Hill, and her hesitancy, based on the perceived short time frame of the vaccine, was a main worry among African-Americans. I don't know what type of long-term effects it may cause or uh, how much testing they've done, how effective is it really? Because, like I said, it just seemed like such short notice. 
It wasn't short or quick, of course. Biotech scientists have been working on a coronavirus vaccine since 2003, following the SARS outbreak. The rest is part of the misinformation bloating the Facebook posts and Twitter threads and parlor feeds of the world. But it's effective misinformation. Dangerous because it works to convince people that there's a faceless boogeyman pumping us full of microchips and toxic metals. Fortunately, the now vaccinated Jefferson says real information got through, critically from trusted sources. We've been from the beginning working with faith-based communities, African-American church leaders, community leaders, you know, trusted voices in, in the community. Dr. Jane Kelly is South Carolina's assistant state epidemiologist. She says reaching the black community where they live and interact has been key to getting more shots into African-American arms. And now broad-scale efforts like events with HBCUs and the Black Legislative Caucus are getting more intimate. We're getting down to a, a smaller and smaller, lo more local level. We're drilling down more and more. That means more small group conversations with Q&A time that Kelly says are getting through especially well to the so-called wait and see types. Those who say they want to see how all this vaccination stuff plays out before they decide whether to go for it themselves. Part of the more personal approach to getting through to African-Americans in South Carolina are the ongoing information sessions hosted by NAACP groups. Lillian Brock Fleming is a Greenville City Councilwoman and secretary of the city's NAACP chapter. And she says a big push from the organization has been to let black residents know that plenty of African-Americans were part of the vaccine trials. There were hundreds and probably thousands of African-Americans who were part of the program and part of the research. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, African-Americans made up almost 10 percent of the Pfizer and Moderna studies. Fleming says getting numbers like that through has gone a long way. But so, she says, has been the change in national leadership. President Biden hadn't been sworn in yet and he was not in charge. They did not feel comfortable with the previous administration because they didn't have a lot of information. Nothing was shared with them. Fleming says Biden's immense support among black South Carolinians and the administration's ramped up rollout of the vaccine have helped change many minds. But you can't gauge the black community's growing embrace of the COVID vaccine without considering the influence of family and personal relationships. Both Courtney Jefferson and her friend, Breanne Holly, say their friends deciding to get vaccinated, as well as pushes from relatives who work in healthcare, helped turn their skepticism around. I work with kids, I, you know, I work around a lot of people, so I just felt like it would be safer. And then my mom, she works um, in a hospital and she got the vaccine as well. So she was kind of pushing for my family and I to get it because it would just be safer overall. You know, just why not if it can help? Holly had another reason to come around. I had COVID actually, I had it in January. So because of me having it as well, I didn't want to get it again. It wasn't fun. Mine wasn't, you know, as bad as other people's, but it still was not fun. Holly says people need to realize that we're obviously not going to mask and distance our way out of this pandemic. And if that doesn't get through, she says, maybe try thinking about how much you'd like to travel after a year of staying in and how not being vaccinated will keep you from doing that. On April 1st, the day after everyone over 16 became eligible for the vaccine in the state, we had a seven-day moving average of 55,038 doses administered. As of April 20th, the seven-day moving average is 17,140. Quite the drop-off there. We have some more data for you on vaccines in the state. So far, 2.8 million doses have been administered in South Carolina, which includes 1.6 million people who have received at least one vaccine, which is roughly 40% of the population. Overall, slightly more than a quarter of the eligible population in the state is fully vaccinated, 
which comes out to roughly 28%. So a lot of data right there, but state health officials say more needs to be done. Dr. Brandon Traxer, DHEC's Director of Public Health, said the agency is doing a deep dive on demographic data so it can get the word out to those who need it most, especially as vaccination rates have slowed. You can see data right now on DHEC's vaccine dashboard by race and age. Here's Dr. Traxler. We are seeing more uh, appointments in vaccine slots, vaccination slots going unfilled. Um, and we are seeing some of those rates uh, decrease, de- <clears throat> excuse me, decreasing as you, as the, the person noted in their question. Um, we are continuing to message. We're doing this deeper dive to see who we need to work on messaging to, um, to whom that should be and what that message should be. Um, and a lot of that information from that deeper dive into the data will help give us that information. At this point, we are seeing an increase in supply compared to demand. We knew from early on when we were seeing the opposite that we would see this. Um, and we are we are likely seeing it now. But um, that is really all all what makes it even more important uh, for everyone who hasn't been vaccinated but is eligible to go and get vaccinated as soon as they can. Since cancel culture is such a thing these days, we decided to get in on the action. Actually, it seems like the entire state and country did too, because we have officially canceled the 2020-2021 flu season. That's what the New York Times declared since there have been fewer flu cases this past year than any flu season on record. In South Carolina so far, there have only been 18 deaths compared to a five-year average of 128. There have been 14 flu-related hospitalizations compared to 2,800, and 115 lab-confirmed flu cases compared to 3,600. Now, just a little note there that there have been 15 flu and COVID-19 co-infections. So, we have dodged the twindemic this year, but experts are worried about what may happen next flu season. I, for one, will be wearing a mask in public during the winter months and don't even think of shaking my hand. Cancelled. It's cancelled. Don't touch it. Don't touch me. Welcome to our wind down section, our little break from the news. We talk about life during the pandemic and want to hear your stories as well. Tell us how you're handling things, what's new in your world, how the kids are, how your parents are. Have you seen your grandparents? What's going on, guys? Let us know. The Hopper wants to know, too. 803-563-7169. You might just get on the pod. In fact, you will pretty much get on the pod if you call. (laughs) (laughs) Um, AT, I I hear we're down to our last last one in the Hopper. This is a very last lonesome voicemail from the Hopper right now. Oh, it's been crying all night. I've been trying to console it. It won't won't shut up. My God. Well, you better play it then. <laughs> Better play it just and then to get it out. The hopper will be sad for a long time. Oh, the hopper's gonna be destitute. <laughs> Ooh, buddy. Okay, here we go. Hello. So I am a teacher in South Carolina, and I was calling to give y'all an update. Um, we had our second round of vaccinations this week with the Moderna vaccine. Um, extremely, extremely grateful that we were able to get that as teachers at our school. Um, So they held it at high schools only, so elementary schools and middle schools kind of worked together to make sure that, worked with their staff to make sure that they had coverage so that those teachers could also get over to get it as well. Unfortunately, we held this earlier in the week, 
And a lot of teachers were out the next day because it hit them like a brick wall at a very high velocity. And so a lot of us were seriously ill and having our fevers and aches and pains, and none of that was unexpected. We all expected to have a horrible reaction just because most of us have been exposed all year long, so even those who haven't necessarily thought they had coronavirus probably had some version of it at some point this year. Um, so it, it it was a really rough week. <laughs> um, the day, the next, so two days after the vaccine, we still had a good bit of staff out, but we had excellent people from our district step up and come out and help cover classes. And our admin really dealt with the situation better, the best that they could. It was it was a struggle, but. Very, very happy that we are vaccinated. Anyways, I wanted to give you guys an update and let you know that that had happened and that things are going well with that. Um, hopefully this means that we get closer to normal. Thank you for all the coverage y'all do. Um, keep, keep it up. All right, bye. Thank you, mystery teacher. We love it. Love hearing from folks out there and how things are going in different workplaces, especially schools during all of this. I hate to hear about that timing situation for that second vaccine, though. <laughs> That's I mean, kind of funny. That's kind of funny. But despite that timing uh, hiccup, glad to hear that folks stepped up and, and made it work as best they could. But yeah. I also hear the coolest people are getting Moderna. <laughs> I mean, thank you. <laughs> thank I, you. I had Moderna. I, you didn't want to say <laughs> it because you got it. But, but no, as I mean, a Johnson and Johnson, no I did d- say it. Not a big deal. <laughs> oh, they're all cool in my book. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, I think uh, my stepmother's getting her second vaccine this week. And, that's uh, good. Second dose. I think she got Pfizer. And they were both kind of smacked around by the first dose. So I think it's going to be the same for the second dose. I'll be out of dodge first when dose, that happens. they weren't feeling good? Yeah, Jay. They, they weren't too crazy about it. So Oof. That's rough. Mm-hmm. But speaking of parents, you're yes. up in the great state of New Jersey, the Mosquito the State. The Garden State. <laughs> the oh, Mosquito yeah. State. <laughs> So, A.T., you drove up there with your wife, Kaylin. Tell us about your travels. What's going on? The drive was fine. Drive was fine. I listened to a lot of podcasts, Comedy Mm -hmm. Bang Bang, mostly. Really good stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I walked in, I sent Gavin a picture. I sent him a picture (laughs) of uh, the absolute Italian spread. What a spread. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Oh, we had bolognese. We had... (laughs) We well, so many things. Your plate was like Thanksgiving, but oh, Italian Thanksgiving. It, was, it, it literally was an Italian version of when you go to like a, a barbecue, then it's a yes. buffet place in yes. South Carolina and you just pile your plate. But it was exclusively carbs, exclusively yes. noodles with uh, pasta, with bread on the side. And you had uh, a loaf of bread on the side of your plate. I was like, <laughs> gee, did, I, did you I, eat all that bread? I ate about, oh, I ate that times three. Oh I, I <laughs> <laughs> I ate so much bread, it was stupid. To st- where I was so full, my dad's like, finish the bread. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to need 30, 40 minutes before I can eat that. But I did eat it. I I'm, did eat it, I'm I will s- say. This was last night, so I'm still, you know, this is 3 o'clock on Friday. I'm just amazed that you're still, you're here. Like, you're not in some deep coma from the, the carbs. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I woke up in the morning and I go, Caitlin, I am not hungry. I ate so much dinner last night. She goes, well, I'm hungry. We want bagels. And so, oh God. obviously, I ate a bagel also. <laughs> you so had to. I ate a metric ton of, uh, because we are in metric, according to Instagram yes. on this podcast. Uh, I ate a metric ton of pasta last night and then a bagel this morning. And I, 
I don't know if I'm going to eat dinner. I, I'm so full. You knew this was coming, and I'm wondering, I mean, you're, you're already eating, you know, these meals, but not on this level. Um, no. Were you prepared for this? Maybe, I guess not, but how are you going to adapt to this? You have several more days of what I assume will be the same rigorous <laughs> eating schedule. I, I, I do believe that my body is ready. <laughs> it is prepared. Yeah. Um, and uh, gotta get your mind I mean, right. I, I did. Yeah, it's really all where my head is. My head space isn't quite there. I gotta. I, yeah, I gotta be in it to win it. But I'm gonna gain all the weight that I lost during the pandemic back in these next five days. But I, I mean, I don't really care. I haven't had pizza yet. I haven't had my calamari yet. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, my, my dad and I, we did go out and we bought four cases of Yingling. Premium oh boy. Okay. Oh, yeah. So you're just, so. you're just gonna add that to the mix too, <laughs> and let it simmer for a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, it's carbon car. Yeah. up in here it's 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 big time big time tommy i'm excited for this for you uh especially so you can I'll, see your family you can keep eating well and then uh is it possible that we might hear a voice shift from you maybe on tuesday's pod like are we gonna are you gonna start dropping some some new jersey, jersey lingo and stuff like are, oh, are you gonna relapse you're gonna you're not gonna be able to get me to stop calling you a stunad <laughs> all day my guy maron <laughs> i mean you become italian all of a sudden <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be Bellissimo, trust me. <laughs> I'm just going to talk with my hands the whole time. It's not going to cut. It's not going to work. We're not going to we're not going to see it, but we're going to hear it. Anyway, Gavin, enough about me. Let's talk about you. And what what, what do you want to talk about right now? The Oscars, of course. Duh, They're this duh. weekend. I don't know mm. anything about them. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your pick for best picture? Uh, uh, I've only seen one best picture inadvertently. So I, you got it. And I can't even say it. that that's the best one. But I saw uh, Mank on Netflix has Gary Oldman yeah. in it. I like Gary Oldman. Yeah. He's a great guy. I love Gary Lots Oldman. Laughs. <laughs> so many laughs in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Oh, that's you know? his, his most humorous Absol- role. Absolutely. Hands down. <laughs> No, my favorite Gary Oldman character, I gotta say, is uh, Fifth Element, Zorg. Oh, right? yeah, the long forgotten random one. He must have made some bills. Fifth Element, yeah. <laughs> I like the black goo. In um, Dracula, he's great in Dracula. He's amazing in Dracula. And um, I mean, just what a range. We're going from Zorg to, you know. Yeah, I know. But, I, I love that guy. He's in great, great, he's know, a great actor. Mank is about the how the how the screenplay behind Citizen Kane came to be and Sure. He plays the lead actor. I, you know, full disclosure, I still have not seen Citizen Kane in its entirety. What? I know. That's like a tragedy for a journalist, but, you know. You want a spoiler? You want a spoiler? <laughs> Rosebud. <laughs> it yeah, Rosebud is, is still it's a, it's a sled. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, I can't watch this William now. William of hers? No, but yeah. No. But I think I've seen the movie now that I, you know, watched the making of the movie. <laughs> oh, so, you get yeah, it yeah. now. I, I yeah, totally get you it. get it. I get it. You totally get it. But um, yeah, the Oscars might be a nice break from all the crime drama and cable news that my parents consume <laughs> down here. If it's not one, it's the other, and it's it's a lot coming from a household where I consume strictly ETV or like streaming services because I don't mm-hmm. have cable. I just watch, you know, I got an antenna, and it's pretty much just Judy or like Nature or. I'm not even masterpiece because I can't. Up here, you're you're Rizzoli in Isles and yes. Law and Order yes. and Special and Victims and Unit. Like we <laughs> dealt with a bomb threat this morning, and then we mm-hmm. had to deal with someone getting uh, evicted and their restaurant taken away on SVU. So there's been a lot of drama that I've been assisting in. Your uh, heart can't rate save is, everybody. Is yeah, and then you on top can't of that, save them all. <laughs> on top you know? of that, it's just the cable news. So I'm really right in right now. <laughs> Sheesh. Anyway, yeah. well, well so, let, how yeah. about we let both get back, get back to it? I'll, I'll get back to my cards <laughs> and you can get back to your crime dramas, okay? Yeah, we, See you, folks. Let me get back to stress watching TV. <laughs> yeah. 
But thank you all. Thanks for listening to the pod and show us your appreciation by leaving us a review on iTunes or a voicemail at 803-563-7169. A voicemail. Please call. Please. The hopper is dying for your voices. <laughs> and once we get your voices, we kind of keep them. It's like Ursula. It's a long story, but just go, go in and call 803-563-7169. You can stay up to date with the latest news on SCETV.org and SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. And don't forget to support your local newspapers. For the South Carolina Lead, I'm Gavin Jackson. Be well, South Carolina. Yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry. What does that matter? This is, this, is, this is way over your no, head, No, you okay? wouldn't understand what I'm even getting you at. Wouldn't, you, you wouldn't understand what I'm talking about at all. Okay?